Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. All right, guys, so welcome to another episode of the Highly Enclaved Imperfectly Perfect Podcast. Excited about this one. So we've been rounding off with some professional athletes to talk about mental fitness and going through their own personal struggles to share with you guys, to share their advocacy, and to uh, go through some of the hard conversations that a lot of people do tend to skirt around. So today, my guest is Renny Gartner. In a career spanning TV, radio, and media management, she's also one of the only professionals out there who can boast to being a professional boxer. Away from the ring, she's sparring of a different kind, as is a regular sideline report for Triple M and NRL Nation Radio. And as freelance MC for the Australian Turf Club and South Sydney, both in their prestigious chairman's functions, from hosting the annual NRL Awards Night to the Games Pinnacle Matches, the State of Origin Series, to the more intimate awards, dinners, corporate engagements, and events. Renee has injected her lighthearted wit, wit, eh? eh? <laughs> and sports <laughs> intelligence as a regular panelist on programs such as Channel Lines, The Footy Show, NRL to Network 10, Studio 10, Sports Fan Clubhouse on Channel 7 May, and the League Lounge on Fox Sports. She's additionally co hosted major primetime television sporting events, including the 2017 Men's Rugby League World Cup and the Women's Rugby League World Cup as a commentator and co host. Prior to her move in front of the camera, Renee also worked in the media and communications for the New South Wales State Rugby League, which followed a successful stint working with the Gold Coast Titans in media and PR and hosting morning breakfast radio in the city of the same name, the Gold Coast, Queensland, Australia. She's also a huge campaigner and advocate towards speaking out on mental health. And I'm so grateful upon reaching out to her about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign's global efforts last year. Maybe before last year because of COVID, actually, wouldn't have been. But uh, firstly, welcome to the show, Renee. Thank you so much. What a bio. Isn't it? You know, what? I always yeah. say to people, when you hear that and you actually look back and you go, bloody hell, I've done quite a lot, haven't I? <laughs> Jack of many trades, master of none, then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the reason obviously you, you came on board is you are a huge campaigner and you do a lot of charity work and you do a lot of the, the boxing events to raise money and funds for charities. So I suppose what the Imperfectly Perfect campaign is for anyone just coming across this, it's about shining a light on behind the scenes. And we obviously see, Renee, from, from that bio there, how successful you've been and the accolades of the, the rewarding career. But what some people do not see, the behind the scenes and what you openly do spread awareness is about these hard conversations and that you openly talk about you once tried taking your own life. Mm-hmm. So going into those hard conversations, um, do you mind just explaining a little bit around that and, and why you chose to use your platform now to advocate it? Yeah, for sure. So for me, it was, um, I, I've struggled with the diagnosis for me it changed over many years. I guess I started um, feeling that I wasn't quite right when I was around 13, but I just moved from Sydney to the Gold Coast. So um, anyone who's known a, a woman or a girl that's gone through the age of 13, uh, they're quite um, robust and sporadic and moody and can change, you know, from mood from one to the other. So there was always like something, there was an explanation all the time for the way I was feeling. Um you know, I, I advocate that I had 
a roof over my head. I have a family that refused to hang up the phone without saying I love you. Um, you know, I had great friends. And as I grew up, I was quite competitive and, and successful in sport as well. But I just couldn't explain the, the depths of, I, I guess, depression and emotion that I was feeling outside of that because as far as I was aware when I was growing up like you had to be quite misfortunate in different areas you had to be underprivileged in different areas you know you had to have some sort of family issues or, or whatnot and I didn't have any of that so I kept fighting it and that was the stigma right so I guess for me now that it's gotten to the stage where I have been diagnosed um, it's really, really important for me to break that stigma. So, you know, our younger kids coming through or even adults and, and people that are younger or older than me now might see bits and pieces and, and feel a little bit more at peace that, you know, maybe I'll go and ask for help or maybe I'll talk about it a little bit more. And even if it just starts the smallest of conversations and I'll, I'll feel a little bit happy about it. Um, it's never a comfortable conversation to have, I'm sure you're aware of, to say, help me, or I'm struggling, or I'm not fine, I'm not okay. Um, and I guess for me, I started, I, I saw a doctor for a little while, and because I'm such a, a hyper human and my depression was sort of really quite severe, they diagnosed me at first with bipolar one, which is quite extremes of the two mm. um and for me the medication made me quite feel quite sick and I wasn't educated on on how it was going to make me feel or what it was going to do and I started having a real identity crisis because who was I if I you know if I didn't have the tablets and who was I when I did have my medication and again I didn't ask more questions I didn't sort of seek any any more advice out of that and unfortunately I, I sort of got to the point where I uh, stopped taking my medication quite dramatically, which again is unbelievably dangerous. What age um, was this around, Renee? Uh, so again, I was treated since I was 13 with all, all range of different medications, but um, I actually classify this year as my sixth, sixth birthday. Um, so it was 2015 I um, in June that I, I actually tried to take my life. Um, and I was one of those people that... Uh, I guess you hear it a lot when when someone takes their life. If you speak to any of their friends or family, they kind of go, "Oh, but I actually thought they were doing well. Um, you know, they started coming good, or you know, they were start they were they were happy all of a sudden." And for me, that was like a really drastic change because I'd gone from being that happy person to like I just slid further and further into depression. And I, you know, I was someone who dotted my eyes and crossed my T's, and all of a sudden I wasn't doing that. I lost enjoyment in everything I was doing. Boxing for me, as you mentioned before, is something I did. I loved doing. Um, I found myself not even wanting to be in the gym and, and not, not wanting to be around. It's a point where I, like, I sat in my car for two hours at a training session and rang my coach and told him I was in a meeting simply because I couldn't get out of my car and, and get in yeah. to the gym. Um, and so I, I actually started planning, uh, which is, again, really dangerous, and I won't go too deep into it, but if I could give that as more of a highlight of something to look out for, um, I, again, I chose early on, like six months before I even tried to take my life. So in those last six months, I didn't want people to remember me as this sad person or this person that wasn't good at what they were doing or didn't like, you know, wasn't me. Um, so I started going and taking my friends out for dinner and lunch and trying like having really happy dinners. So that was their last you know, uh, time with me that they could remember, which sounds really stupid. Um, and then again, everything like work-wise, I sort of cleaned everything up and 
uh, it just got to a stage where I just broke. It was just one weekend. Uh, it was earlier than I thought that when I had planned again, it's stupid. Um, it's not stupid. It's just why, again, I, I didn't reach out. Um, I didn't think I could reach out. And I, I thought I had already gone and gotten help and it hadn't worked. So therefore nothing was going to work for me, um, which I've since learned that there's a hell of a lot more that can be done for it. Um, so I tried to take my life and I was extremely, extremely lucky um, that my friends were a little bit more switched on and they took some language out of something I'd written in a text. And um, as it happens, it sort of went around in a communication with a bunch of my friends and I ended up having a, a friend come in and kick the door in and take me to hospital. So um I'm again super grateful for it because that time in the hospital was probably the first time where I was able to sit back. I was in a ward for probably 10 days, I think, all up. Uh, it was the first time where I had peace and quiet and my brain was able to slow down. And I was finally in front of a psychologist and a psychiatrist that discussed things with me and asked me questions and forced me to answer, not just like get away with me, just go and I'm fine, which is one of our common lies that we all tell. Um, and during that time, they, they said that I'd been misdiagnosed um, and that they wanted to help me be on a better treatment plan. And part of that treatment plan meant, you know, going and speaking to someone. And uh, for me, like when I was going through that period, the mental health plans weren't in place. So it was $500 a pop to go and see someone at those stages. And like, you know, when you're working and living in Sydney, it's a lot. That's that's not much money left in the bank after a rent and putting some two-minute noodles in your mouth. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of, as I said, really struggling to find ways to get help. And I, as I said, I just felt like I just I couldn't. I had nothing. And um, and it was a real peaceful moment for me to, to know that it was okay for me to be feeling those things and you know I had a chemical imbalance I had an illness and um, I guess I sort of relate it now to I broke my leg quite a while ago in um, skateboarding accident and you know I didn't turn around and just stand up on it and try and walk and go she'll be right like it'll just it'll fix itself it's fine you know I went to the hospital I got an x-ray I had an operation they put a cast they gave me crutches so I had aids to help me with the leg pain and then friends would open doors for me or I was able to say hey would you mind carrying this for me or could you give me a lift here there or there and there was no stigma around that mm. so I think by you know having these conversations and you know having these discussions that you you do constantly is making it such a common conversation that we have about a broken leg or arm that we can have those same things with mental health and mental illness um, so I guess it's kind of like the, the depth of where my story sort of went. And again, I'm here six years later. So, you know, I still have ups and downs. <laughs> I'm not perfect every day. I've still had moments where, you know, I've gone into a couple of days rut, but I think I've learned that there's a lot of responsibility on me as well too, to reach out to my friends and my GP and say, hey, I'm, I'm not well at the moment um, or I'm having a couple of bad days and then have my, like, you know, chats with my friends or, or change my mental health plan again. 
um, you know, there's always changes and there's always ways to fix it. And I just think that's really important. Um, and it's a messaging that I don't think is really out there that, you know, it's not a one-stop shop fix. And yeah. I like speaking to a, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, it's like dating. Like it's, if you don't have a rapport with them, like then yeah. you, you don't have to just end it there. You go and date someone else um, in a term of psychology sort of way. So well, I think, I think people need to, that what you just said there in its entirety, it was like, even when I started this podcast, I was like, because I'd been through that space myself. Yeah. And I was like, I actually went to see a psychologist the first time. And quite frankly, and I'm open about it, it pissed me off because he was trying to attain it to my childhood and it wasn't. Mine was social media and comparison. So yeah. it didn't work. So I was thinking, well, okay, that's it. A psychologist doesn't work. But what I yeah. realized, and like you, it's ever evolving and we're learning. So this podcast was about listen to Renee's story. If that doesn't work, listen to someone else's because there's always yeah. something that you can try, I think. But for guys, it's very hard to open up. But I was going to pertain it to what you said there. Like as a female, a lot more females are open about their emotions a lot more with their friends. But where was the stigma for you, I suppose, to anybody out there? Was it attesting, like you said, to your childhood when you often thought that it was people from less privileged backgrounds that were attainable to get it and not you? Or what made you think, or, or was that the reason? Yeah, that was, I think that was partly. The other half is I worked in rugby league. So um, I was quite often the only female on camps or the only female... Uh, around the team um so I, I kind of adapted or developed the same sort of male mentality where and, and even probably amplified even more because I was like I'm a female if they see me weak at any stage like then they're just going to tell me I don't belong here and you know I'm not tough enough to work in the the industry that's so male dominated um, so for me I think that was like a major part um around it and I was even embarrassed like for me it happened in between origin two and three um when I was working and in my head because I I obviously I'd, I'd like to I hate using the word if I had succeeded in taking my life because it, that's not a success that's you know a failure but um I wouldn't have had to have been there for origin three and then once I'd sort of got out the doctor was very adamant about um, you know, you need to go back to work, get some normality, go back into the motions and, and sort of now that you've gone through this period where we've been able to sort of develop and, and look after you medically, like now we need to go back into real life mm. and develop. And when I went to go back to work, um, I was told that, um, that that would be a distraction to the team and I should go and um, get some sun and do some yoga from the person who was in charge of the HR at the time. Um, and then the Black Dog Institute was brought in and I was asked not to come to work that day, um, even though I specifically said, look, can I come in um, so that I can, you know, explain to some of the staff that were really pretty close friends for me during that period uh, and just explain where I'd been, uh, why I hadn't been at work for, you know, the, the last 10 days and start the discussions quite small um, and then sort of go from there and they they told me they didn't want me to have those conversations um, and that, you know, it was best that it wasn't a distraction to anyone. It was sort of around that period. So uh, I actually 
went to Bali, <laughs> two of my friends. <laughs> I was like, well, watch this then, hold my beer. <laughs> um, uh, two of my really good friends that I knew from the Gold Coast were running a retreat over there at the time. And they were just, I reached out to them and just went, look, I know it's stupid, but if I stay in Australia and I'm missing from Origin Camp 3, there's going to be all these rumours that I've done something wrong and there's there's that's why I'm not there and I've been sacked or something, you know, or like or it, my head just went into a thousand different ways. And because I was still struggling with what I'd just been through, which was horrendous, I, I didn't know what to do if I, st- I did stay here because people were like, why well, aren't you away? Like you're always in camp. This is, this is weird. So I went away and then everyone in the office got angry at me because I went away during one of the most important games of the year. Um, so then I was getting like messages. I was like, really sorry, I had this trip planned for a while, which was the messaging I got taught to say by the person that was um, the employer at the time. Um, and I got stuck over there with a volcano. So it ended up being a Thanks. month Thanks. over there. it was terrible I hated it which again was unbelievable for me like it was a a time where I was able to again step out of Australia step away from work step away from the pressures I had created for myself like I I had created the persona of who I thought I needed to be all the time Um, so it gave me a bit of a space to be able to you know go over there with people that didn't really know that side of me and I could just sort of be like quiet if I needed to be and um, the in particular the two people that I stayed with, you know, I was there as a retreat. So it was, you know, they, they were there to help me and move through some things as well. But when I came back again, it was just, I was hit with everyone at work. Just going, I can't believe you, you know, you left us during the busiest period. Like that was really selfish of you because it was busy and, you know, we had to carry your workload. And you weren't and- allowed to tell what you'd just been through. Was that no, you, yeah. as well? Wow. Yeah, they they, they asked me not to, to mention anything um, until they had decided it was okay to talk about. Um, and during the time I was in there, because you're not allowed a pen and paper, like you, you're not allowed any sharp objects, you've got to hand over your shoelaces and your drawstrings and all that sort of jazz. Um, I wrote a blog um, like or a diary or journal or I think the buzzword is journaling these days. Um <laughs> And when I came out, I just typed it up on and on what I thought was a closed um, blog. And so I, when I came back, I started to reach out to, so only five friends knew at the time. Um, and I started to reach out to people that were still really in my close network to explain to them what I was going through so that, again, I was taking responsibility that I could have those hard conversations with them to let them know that, you know, I'd probably been a little bit deceitful in, in um, how I said I was feeling. And as part of those chats and conversations where I couldn't have those hard chats, I would send them this link to what I thought was my private blog. And <laughs> excuse me, not COVID. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got a name test. Yeah, uh, where are you living at the moment? Are you the Eastern suburbs? <laughs> I'm in Manly. Yeah, no, oh. God, no. <laughs> I don't know what's the worst though. Um, uh, my friend thought that it was a really impressive, in his words, a really impressive and strong story that needed to be shared. And he thought that I had already shared it because it was online. So when I left, he tweeted the link um, to my blog. And again, as I said, only about five five or six people knew at this stage. And this friend was a, a professional footballer. 
and it got picked up by the Daily Telegraph. So by the time I woke up in the morning, big, huge back page of the sports page, Renee Gartner's biggest fight is a fight of her life and my blog, word for word, verbatim, Renee Gartner tried to take her life like, and I had to walk into work that day. And so I got addressed with um, like friends that were angry at me because uh, that I hadn't told them or that I lied to them. Uh, I had workmates um, that were angry because again, I'd lied to them. I'd not told them where I was going and what had happened. Um, and then I had friends who were part of that really close friends group that were like, we thought that this was meant to be a, a personal story. And one friend in particular said, um, you've now made this about you and that's what you wanted to do clearly. So that was quite a heartbreaking statement to hear. Um, and then obviously just the, like, I was just, I was so embarrassed. I was just mortified. Like, and I just had people who obviously thought I'd gone through it and mended. So they were coming up saying me too, now fix me. And I was like, oh, shit. Wow. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I wasn't ready. Like I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to be having so many conversations. I wasn't ready for that to now be what comes up when you Google my name. Like, and you know, that's, that's affected me really long-term as well too. I went on a date one time with a guy off a dating app and I rocked up and he's like, oh yeah, I Googled your name. And it said, you tried to kill yourself. And that was his opening line. I was like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> this is going to be a fun date. Um... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So yeah. There was, there was a lot to take on and, it, you know, it, it, I ended up, I had another sort of, I guess, breakdown not long after because I just couldn't cope. And, um, you know, people then thought that I wasn't capable of doing, you know, things at work. So, you know, it created a lot more doubt in my ability. Other people thought that I was crazy, uh, you know, so it sort of stuck to the line of the stigma that, you know, if you've got a mental illness, you're not quite right. Wow. Um, you know, and then, as I said, I, but I think one thing that sort of helped me get through it and sort of highlight why I wanted to continue talking about it and making myself uncomfortable um, was messages that I got from people who were from the same mindset as me of the, you know, the stigmas and, and not understanding how they're feeling and saying that they read my story and they related to it so much and they have now gone and got help or they actually now realised that their child was going through the same sort of stuff and they ended up reaching out and having really hard conversations with their child. And the blog that I wrote, like you used the term wit at the start, I don't know if it was a wit or just made an absolute muppet, but I kind of wrote it in my usual humour deflection way. So it's quite a like, it's quite a, like it's a very deep blog, but I'm, I was writing about stupid, like a Beyonce song, I think I use as a reference in there at some stage. Like, um joe joe williams shared it didn't he yeah yeah yeah, he and and like i i know joe well and the masculinity and everything and he said he broke down reading it because he's a good friend of yours and that's where i saw the blog from and i read it and it is it's powerful but i but now you're saying like a beyonce song i'm thinking back of the (laughs) the verbiage that you put so i'm gonna go back and read it yeah i'll go and go and read it and get yourself into the whole beyonce (laughs) song we'll all just start busting out um but yeah i just i kind of use it as that like and you know even jokes about how when my friends came into um you know the ward and having to google where i was and 
one of my mates came in with a wine and like, you know, it's like, well, she'd come straight from the Hunter Valley. So she gave my mum a wine and like, just, yeah. you know, just, it, it was, I, I wrote it in a really real way, but again, yeah. used humor to deflect it, which was a lot of my problem. Like, <laughs> it was just like, that's what I did. I was just like the clown and that made everything okay. Um, but it, it helped, especially with parents being able to give that to their kids to read because it was a relatable. It wasn't someone like sort of getting too medical with terms or yeah. wasn't saying it in a really depressing way. And there's not nothing wrong with that whatsoever at all. But it was just, I guess, a different approach. And hearing that feedback back, um, to me, that was what made me go, all right, I've got to, you know, from vulnerability comes strength. So if I keep telling my story, it's the more I tell it, the less com- uncomfortable I'm going to get and the more people are going to start chatting about it in a, in a sort of a real way, I guess. So, yeah. I love that. And I love how open you are about it. And I think that's, it's kind of like when people see the IPC and they're going, well, it's still growing and it's still growing strong. And I'm like, yes, because it's never changed from the fact that I think at times when there's shows that come on and they depict it and they show the reality, it can go one of two ways because you're trying to make a cultural difference. And like some people are saying it's too much and triggering towards certain shows. And the other, which I'm part of, are going, it's what's happening. Yeah. We need to address it sometimes because the suicide rates are still increasing. Clearly we're missing something. And for you to bring out a blog that resonates, I think with these images, when we captured your image, like yeah. people saw themselves in you and then read your story. But when I was going through mine, I want to ask you from your point of view, and I ask this everyone, to be honest with you, was this certain times along your journey, Renee, that as much as you was trying to hide it, you was indirectly also trying to scream out and let people notice? Because I know for me with the body dysmorphia, there were times when I'd be like, can't feel it, obsessed like obsessed and when I did come out with a story my friends was like well I did think something and I was like but I was screaming out like inside as a guy and these are the things that we need to pick up on so how was your journey with that um my I think I I created a lot of like I wouldn't say I'm a fake person but I created a real, as I sort of said it before, I'm starting over my words, um, a real clown mentality. And for me, when I was always the person that when I walked into a room, I wanted to make sure that everyone in the room felt amazing. Like I just wanted to leave everyone better than I found them. And when I wasn't that person and when I couldn't, I didn't have the energy or, or sort of anything, I, I would blame that I was sick. Um, so I guess a lot of people quite early on were just like, Jesus, just, you, you're gonna, you get migraines a lot. And I do get migraines. So, you know, got to be careful with the boy who cried wolf there as well. But I, I would say I had a migraine and that was when I would lock up for a couple of days at home um, and like I wouldn't leave my room for a, a couple of days. So during those times, I think I was crying out for someone to go, a migraine doesn't last for, you know, four days. We haven't heard from her. She hasn't written back and she's deflecting a lot. And that deflection was probably a really big one. Um, if someone asked me how I was, I'd respond with, hey, how are you? Like, how are you going? I wouldn't even answer it. I would just straight away, straight back, play play on and, and, and sort of go that way. Um, and I think other signs for me were 
yeah, just be like becoming quite sloppy with my work and um, becoming more obsessed with my training. Like I was sort of training for a, a boxing fight at the time. Um, so that was what I just threw myself into that. And again, that became my excuse of not being able to see anyone else or, or do anything else. I was just like, no, training is my life. Like that's, that's where it's at. Um, and I lost a, a really, really beautiful friend um, during that period as well, which, uh, him and I had a really great relationship with talking about boxing. He, you know, he, he was obsessed with it, he loved it. And um, I, he wanted to come watch me and I was just like, no, because I lose my femininity if a, if a guy comes and watches me because that's what I believe that it should be. Like, it's like, no, no, can't come because then, you know, you'll just have a really bad perception of it. And so when he passed away, um, I was getting ready for the fight and that's where I just like I was getting ready for the Australian titles and I every time I went into the gym I now hated boxing because I had cut him off someone who wanted to have uh like wanted to see me for who I was and 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 in every aspect yeah um and I blamed that a lot so um yeah I just there was a lot of deflection and uh, I got a, really angry at myself when that one particular friend passed away because I just, I felt like he was the one that was having the, the most truest conversations with and I still wasn't truthful. Like it just, yeah, that, that, that really broke me a lot. And I, I kind of felt like I couldn't have now go and restart and have those conversations with someone else because they wouldn't have understood any of the other parts. And then also didn't understand me dealing with a, you know, a death as well. So it, yeah, there's a lot of deflection in there. And I think a lot of the people in my groups know a different version of me, um, which again, you see a lot, a lot of people are chameleons. Um, and now I'm sort of a, a little bit more, what you see is what you get. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> stepped into your truth. You've stepped into yeah, your truth. Yeah. Oh, nice. well, not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm someone's <laughs> with you. So you know what I've noticed as well is when you step into that truth, you find your people. Big time. Yeah. I think, I think in a world where we're trying to, I'll tell you something with this journey of this campaign, I'm so grateful, but the lessons I've, I've been brought to my knees more times than ever and then understood that it's more of a lesson for me to understand the people that I'm trying to help in different cultures and backgrounds. And then on the other side, because I've got prolific high profile people and then corporate leaders, I actually started going through where I seemingly attracted people that used me and manipulated me. And I didn't understand why I was attracting it. And wow. then I'm going, okay, it's because now maybe this is a lesson that I'm learning what it's like for you guys you don't want to become cynical, but at the same time, yeah. you're going, my God, I've been brought to my knees. I don't know who is actually my friend. Yeah. Like, and we're, we're constant. And that's why I, I just want to always say on this, this thing, it's like, we're not professionals. This is why we've got resources to go towards. Um, but through storytelling, we can actually impact and help people. But I suppose, yeah. what would you want people to take away from your experience from the aftermath where you ended up going through another episode purely because of how people reacted. So if anyone could be there and somebody comes out after hearing of it and kind of you're frustrated at them for you not knowing, as somebody who went through that and saw it firsthand, how would you want people to react or what advice could you give to people? Yeah, one of the biggest things I try, a lot of people 
when they're t- when they're sort of wanting to speak to someone about it, they feel like they're going to be a burden for starters, mm-hmm. um, and that's probably one of the biggest brick walls for a lot of people who are wanting to reach out for any problem, whether it's you know it is an eating disorder, it is you know mental illness or health or a, a, like a physical pain that they're going through. They feel like it's going to be a burden to someone else because someone there's always someone worse off. Like we're always told that as a kid, there's always someone worse off than you. So get on, get over it. Such yeah. an Aussie way to sort of speak about it. <laughs> yeah. So it's you know it's it's one thing. I call it being the middleman. So one. Me, personally, I need to take responsibility to be able to speak about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also need people around me not to fix me, not to, you know, they don't need to solve all my problems. They just need to be the middleman for me. Um, and that would mean, hey, uh, I know you've been quiet lately. Do you want to go for a walk? Are you safe? Are you? Um, do you want to talk about it? Or do you want to just watch a movie and not talk? Like just give me an opportunity where you know that, you know, I'm locked in, so reach out. Um and don't be scared of my answers. I guess a lot of people, they don't want to ask the question because they don't want to know the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that middleman just needs to be the person that goes, okay, you're having a bad day today. You know what? Let's book in with your GP. If you want me to drive you to the GP, I'll do that for you. If you want me to sit in the waiting room with you, I'll do that for you. Um, you you're not. Like I'm not a medical professional in any way, shape or form, but I speak in mental health landscapes all the time. And my biggest thing is, is like, I'm just here to give you things to look for or, or chats to have. And, you know, it's creating that safe space, asking questions like the, the, the one line I'm fine is one of the biggest lies taught in anyone Um, and you know you use it the same way you know when you go to a restaurant and the waiter puts the food down for you and they're like enjoy your meal and you go you too (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know we we just have these really like innate habitual responses for everything because we don't sit and think and answer we're just like bang 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 Um, so you know it's really important to take responsibility to speak your truths the person listening, listen, and then help them get the help, not be the person that fixes. Um, and it, like the main thing that I, the hard lesson that I learned was that, you know, that they talk about this mental health and mental like compendium where you swing from good to bad and, you know, you sort of go from wherever. So you can, you know, be good and bad on one day. It can go from one to the other, but you kind of need your tools in place to be mm-hmm. able to, you start going down towards that bad end to, to bring yourself back up back into a safe space and whether that's going to see GP and getting your mental health change pained or on a day where you just feel like you can't put your feet down beside your bed, which is where I got to is going, you know what, this is one thing. Like I know it sounds stupid, but get up, you know, simple, a simple, really simple thing for me is like making my bed because then on those days when, as I said, I just want to lay there and not talk to anyone. If I make that bed, I've accomplished something. And that accomplishment gives you a little bit of like, okay, that's one thing done. Um, if I can do that, I can do something else. So that next thing might just be having a shower. Like it's yeah. doesn't, you don't have to go and move mountains. Like just sit, start simplifying things where you can give yourself a little tap on the back. So you don't get fully buckled down by that. I'm a failure. I can't do anything. And I can't fix myself. I can't get fixed. No one wants to help me. Like, tiny tiny little things wash your coffee mug have a shower and simple i guess yeah i think that just that just goes into my last couple of questions because i suppose what we've seen with covid is it's actually 
I, I believe, woken everyone up to their first experience with mental health. So, yeah. I mean, with you of what you've gone through, and I know you've, again, openly spoken about going through COVID and losing like a year's worth of work. For anybody who's come into that first set of their initial hit of mental health, you now have got those resources in place. But what would you say to anybody from first experience? Because, I mean, what, what people don't realize, what I've come to realize in getting to know a lot of you in the public eye through sports, through entertainment, whatever it may be, is like, there are so many highlight reels purely because that is your job. Like I would do a job and I would post it. And I think yeah. there's such a huge disconnection sometimes where people associate that that glamorous life is 24 seven. Yeah. So to go from all this work for a year lined up to nothing, it's going to, of course, your affect you again. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how was your response to COVID? And then obviously having those resources in place, you, you was okay, but still, I was okay, but I was like, I got really bad PTSD this time, this second time around. Um, and it actually really flipped me. And I actually had a really bad manic episode where I was awake for three days, like I'm an insomniac generally. Um, but I was wide awake for three days. I, I live alone. That's, that's a lot of time on your own, um, even for me. <laughs> um, and my first instinct was um, obviously because I've learned so much in the last six years was to reach out to my GP. And I literally walked into her office and sat there and cried. I was like, you need to, like, this isn't working. I know that the following things was what has affected me like it's it's I can we can fix this but I, I need help like I, I need your help to help me there's obviously something that my medication might need to change um can you also give me other things to help me manage um what's just happened so so I've just lost 98 percent of my work all over again so and last COVID I literally had my whole year lost in the space of three phone calls um I think for a lot of people, if I was to, to give advice for what they're going through is if it's a feeling, they sort of talk about like we all go through really, we can all have bad mental health at one stage. If it lasts beyond two weeks, that's when we really need to be seeking help and, you know, going to a medical profession and sort of discussing it further. But I think one thing, if I could say, like, it's, it's okay to be absolutely, excuse my language, but absolutely be shitting yourself with what's going on right now. Am I, am I going to get my work back? How am I going to pay for things? You know, do I, if you've got a family to look after or, you know, whatnot. And for me, it was swallowing my ego. Like I put it up on my Instagram the other day. I was like, I don't care if I'm digging holes, like making coffee cups or just there for interpretive dance. If anyone has any work, like, yeah at me and like just because I work in media or you know I've worked in other places that doesn't make make me not be able to ask for help um and that's not even help that's me just going I still want to do things because I know if my brain is in this house for like however long on my own and not doing anything it becomes idle yeah. I'm going to get lost in my own negative thoughts and it's going to happen. Negative, the negative patterns happen. Um, you've just got to start building a toolkit and a toolkit for me is um, I now try and get out and go for a walk. Um, and even when it's raining, which I know is going to be harder for a lot of people that you know don't like the wet weather. Um, but a lot of gyms at the moment uh, provide some online training programs and that can be anything from like a, you know, a combat session to a, a yoga and meditation session. And there's a lot of free platforms that do that. You do it in the comfort of your own home. Just 
you know, a small amount of exercise. I actually did a session before I jumped on the call with you tonight um, because I needed to, because I, I was so edgy. Like I'd already gone for a walk this morning, but like I've just been sitting at home just going, shit, like, um, am I going to get any work? Am I going to pick anything up? And if I'm already bored, like, I, you know, I've already watched every Netflix, like, you know, I've done all that. So I started getting really, like, my energy just started bubbling and bubbling. And I was like, all right, how do I take a bit of that edge off? Uh, That's going to happen. And then I also know that I'm about to have a real conversation with someone where, we're going to be talking about things. And, and that's, you know, another second thing for me, I need human contact. I was one of those people that really struggled with the fact that I couldn't touch and cuddle and hug my mates and be around everyone all the time. And I know that's a lot for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, it's really important for me to have the, the contacts, whether it's through zoom, I had a FaceTime with two of my girlfriends today. Um, you know, just little things, finding your little toolkit on how, how to sort of get through it. Um, like don't let yourself sort of get stuck in a rut if you feel that energy start bubbling like whether it's picking up a book or downloading a book off the internet if you, you can't get out to the shops um podcasts they're bloody everywhere um you know <laughs> there's an amazing one called the imperfect uh, imperfectly perfect campaign i think it's a great <laughs> one to <hang> around <laughs> um, but, yeah but there's there's so like there's a lot but you yeah, know what we, I, I i wish i'd have seen that post on instagram because through this campaign, it was so funny, as, as most people, because I'm transparent, I jumped on construction to make this possible when I was doing 12 yeah. days and that. And um, I was speaking to a couple of people, and this was one of the things that they found hard, purely being in the public eye. So I love the fact yeah. that you just owned that, because yeah. I said to a couple of them, well, you know what? One weekend, I got my white card. I'm not in the public eye, but I got my white card, yeah. and I started the next day. And I said it to a couple of people. There was one girl who's a, who's a model and she was like, you know what? I need cash. I'm going to do it. So she became one of those. The lollipop girls. Yeah. And, and they, they make a packet. She was making two and a half grand a week. And a couple of people yeah. that I told about it, there was like, look, I think it's amazing. I said, between auditions, obviously COVID's happening. You're not going to get on at the minute. But I said to make that just to get by, and there was like, yeah, but the thing is, in the public eye, if the media pick up on it, it's almost it's one of those stories like, look at, and I said, but that is the place of ego, because if you hold yourself there, at the end of the day, the papers aren't paying for your 100%. bill. 100%. And so, do you know what that person's going to do by going out and getting a white card and showing that, you know, they're showing that they're going, they're, they're, they're work hard and they're, they don't want to sit back and be lazy and they will drop their ego to do whatever job's necessary. They're going to create a, a shit ton of respect. Like I'm already want to high five that model who went out and was a lollipop girl. Like, <laughs> and even like the construction. I, the first, I, literally, I did the exact same thing last time. I was like, we'll mow a lawn. I have like steel cap shoes. I'm ready to go. Let's, I, I want to be on a work site and my work, my guy mates were just like, mate, we no, no, you're not coming on our site. You'll be a pest. Oh, um, three months, mate. I will tell you when I was yeah. doing this for three months, they give, I jumped on laboring. They give you the shittiest jobs and oh, yeah. 12 hours a day, three months. When they're carving into the walls, this silica dust. Basically, oh, the we had to stand there hosing for 12 hours a day. And I'm like, oh, my. But you know what it taught me? Patience. Yeah. <laughs> and clarity. And out of all like, the hose. <laughs> if I can do this, I can do anything. 
Uh, and I, that's 100% right, right? Like you sit there and like I got made redundant from a job, God, like 10 or so years ago and my ex-partner was a builder. So he's like, come and like be my tradie for a couple of months in between jobs. I was like, I'm ready. I can do roof and wall <laughs> installation now. I can frame. I can do that full panels, the whole kit and caboodle. And like, by the end of it, I was just like, I felt really empowered because I was just like, I'm actually well, I'm truly more capable than what I actually like than an IKEA flat pack. Like, I'm, I love an IKEA I flat pack. Harder to make. How many times do you go wrong? Like, I can That's remember they give you whole... all this equipment and you've got to put it together with a screwdriver, but they give well, you an Allen key and you're like, mate. I I will admit, after one cabinet that we once did, we put it together and it looked beautiful, and then Kat, my wife, noticed the top shelf was the wrong way round. Upside down. And I was like. Uh, so you know what we do now? We go on air tasker and we pay someone. <laughs> I'm like, no, nah, no, yeah, no more. Yeah, well, that's but, even like, there's opportunities with air tasker and stuff now. Like I know an email came through because I used to book people for air tasker for other jobs, um, and it came through saying with COVID that you're not necessarily an essential worker with that at the moment. So that's that put a bit of a, a handbrake on poor air taskers. Um, but yeah, I just, I think it's really important. If anyone takes anything out of this, it's, it's massively about dropping the ego. Like if I dropped my ego earlier, I would have got help earlier. Mm. Um, if I dropped my ego with work, I, you know, I'd probably have a little bit more, um, you know, in the skyrocket at the moment, I'm going to make dumplings with one of my friends tomorrow. (laughs) So (laughs) I am a multi-skilled now. My resume is like, someone goes, you want your resume? I was like, "Mm." So when the work comes back on TV and everything, we're going to see you as Martha Stewart, but running yeah. up. <laughs> I'm just ready to have like a TV show now where I can literally do cooking demonstrations. I can do some boxing coaching and also show you how to put together a house. So oh, yeah. Dear <laughs> networks, check out this versatility. <laughs> oh man. But I think, I, I think it's amazing now that every profession that like profile people are coming forward and especially in the sports industry, like, you're leading the way. Alexa is leading the way. Yeah. Um, Joe Williams. We had uh, Willie Mason came on as well, and he spoke. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah. It's, it's just like, I just hope now, and we are seeing it change, but I'm just hoping now from your experience where your management team told you to keep quiet about it, I just hope that's changing now, and it's still not a case of ticking a box with a lot of companies. Yeah. Because I'll tell you something, I always say, if you can pull yourself out of clinical depression, don't question my abilities at work. Yeah. Like it's one of the hardest things. And it just shows you that there are some of the most successful people in this world who have gone on to achieve amazing things who yeah. hit the bottom. So yeah. I just, I just hope that, but last question for you out of everything that you've done and learned. And I think I asked it you when we first caught up, but it's been a, a, about a year and a half because of COVID. What yeah. does being imperfectly perfect mean to you? I think it's um, imperfectly perfect to me is vulnerability. Uh, it's, I think with vulnerability, you know, you can trip over your words, you can have a cry and all of that's not considered perfect. Um, and, to me, I think we all need to sort of harness that sort of that vulnerable side where that creates the conversations. We have the ability to be able to go, hey, like I messed up with that or, you know, I need help with this. And I think that's the, the absolute nail you know, on the head. Like just bang. Love it. Love it. So, I, I, well, I normally ask like, uh, 
what's next? But we're still on the lockdown again. So <laughs> yeah. outside of the country. <laughs> Sydney, I don't, has the rest of Australia gone on lockdown? I know Sydney. Um, I think Queensland went at 6pm tonight, but they're only for three days, you know, because everyone's doing it differently. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Melbourne, Melbourne's all good now. So, I mean, they're never going to get it again. Um I mean, I, look, as I said, it's, it's always changing. The platforms are always changing. Um, I'm in the hands of the gods with Rugby League World and events. Uh, I, like most of my work was hosting lunches and sports lunches, and I was even about to start going back into schools and businesses with living and chatting there as well too, which, again, everything's been yeah. altered. So, uh, as I said, tomorrow tomorrow's dumplings. Uh, the next day it might be packing orders for a clothing company. It, you know, I just... Never know. You've just, as I said, drop the ego, take as much as you can get at the moment. And and for me, it's time to learn. I'm learning new trades. And whether it was something that I never thought I would actually touch or do, I'm, I'm still learning. Have you got your white card? Um, no, I've, my one of my mates told me to go get that. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, white card will also be on the agenda as well. Um, we'll get you on side. Yeah, so call me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I know there's quite a lot of people at the moment because they're looking for people. So, hey. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm ready. If you're ready for someone to do interpretive dance and sing every song that comes on the radio, I'm your woman. <laughs> well, the amount of pictures I actually get from my friends sometimes, who who is the model who came on the campaign, <laughs> she'll yeah. go, well, this is a different bloody catwalk, in it, with a high-vis yeah. on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about the high-vis, baby. Steel caps and high-vis, I'm in. That's tap dancing shoes right there. She did own it though. The first time she went on, and she was like, "Like she has got no ego at all." But she said, "It it is kind of hard when you're in the middle of Sydney CBD. Yeah. Everyone's walking past you in the suits, and you stood there with a." And then I, I said, "But think of it this way: so everyone always goes, there's all the Irish and Brazilians and English. They're all doing it." And I said, "That's that judgment thing because they're all laughing because they do two weeks, they earn six grand, and they go to Bali on a holiday." I was like, "It's yeah. us lot who are." <laughs> Like kind of yeah. like signing I picked off a really people. stupid job where it can go like that. <laughs> yeah, where there's no like bloody and I think that's that's the thing with the government at the minute. I'm like for people who are in the public eye on like the work's not consistent. Yeah. So kind of like there was no help when that short. And I know for me, we basically got told my kids were off. I had to look after them because my cat my cat my wife was working and yeah. pretty much I got told we applied for the assistance because you're going from a two family income to a one. Yeah. And we got told because we had assets and savings. No. So I was like, well, how do you get this to pay for something that we're paying a mortgage for a two family income to one? And it was like, well, sorry, you've got to use your savings. And I was like, I didn't take it as a frustration thing. I was like, I'm grateful for what we have got. Imagine how many people out there don't have it. And what they have. Yeah. Well, I churned through all my savings last year. It was probably my saving grace that I had some, but I also had to touch my super as well. So, you know, it's just stupid. I mean, I know you've got Rob Mills on the show as well. Like we even spoke to him. Like we're we're in the industry where we didn't get JobKeeper and and assistance or anything like that. So it was tough. Like I had friends, I think think Mills even did it as well too. I had a really good mate, um, Duan, it's Home Remedy, and it became a live stream that we did. Um, a couple of nights a week during lockdown and it actually helped our community on the northern beaches because we would actually all zoom in 
and he would perform the live stream and then every now and then they'd flick the camera to different people's lounge rooms. So you were hoping like you were, weren't doing anything <laughs> <laughs> wrong at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone was having a drink and then like when we actually came out of lockdown, you'd walk into Manly and be like, oh, yeah, I remember you. I know your lounge. Like, you know, it started this gut and it also helps like him support and, you know, he got gigs out of it thereafter and, at those gigs we all then went to those venues to go and support him because he helped us like music and that community gathering during that time was so important and they provided that for nothing like you know so that's the thing isn't it it's like it always comes down to the public to collectively pull together and look i'm gonna say the hard conversation no politics or anything like that but yeah. it's going who do you always call on when you need to rally the troops and bring a community together musicians yeah active yeah. the entertainers when they're struggling you close the door it's it's mm -hmm. and i know that everyone's been saying this and that it's just you can't quite grasp it but it just goes yeah. to show that communities are what build strength so yeah they're amazing but um yeah, yeah where, where, where can people find more information about you and everything that you do uh where can people <laughs> get hold of your dumplings are you selling them online <laughs> Well, the, the dumplings are Veronton, uh, so that I, I'll put a link up on my Instagram. Um, and the, I think, yeah, my Instagram, I think we spoke, you kind of brushed on highlight reels before. If you want someone that doesn't have a highlight reel, I'm a dickhead on there 24-7. Um, I show you when I fall off a box jump, and then I also show you the highlights when I'm actually at work and might be doing something right. Uh, but a lot of the time it's just me not doing things well and <laughs> So yeah, if you um, my Instagram is Renee underscore Gartner, um, and then I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use that that much anymore. I think the the grams where it's at, where I think there's a bit of a crossover between TikTok and Instagram. That's the best way to say it. Are you on TikTok yet? I am on TikTok. Oh, you've not fell down the rabbit hole, have you? Oh my god, I was actually on it like yesterday. I was like, not again, because I just started doing all the lip reading. Like I didn't do any of the dances. I love dancing. Don't get me wrong, but I was like. My, my stage, my floor is the dance floor for me. I don't need to be constricted by their moves. Um, but, yeah, I just started lip reading and going back into my old acting technique. Do you, do you not watch it and you go, oh, you know what, like, I, I actually thought I was quite creative and then I watched these kids who were, like, not even half my age or lower. Yeah. And they're, like, they're coming out with all this stuff and how to do transitions and then they change mm. clothes and I'm, like, I ain't got time to watch how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's the positive that came out of lockdown is creativity exploded right like and we saw people become singers and dancers and actors and painters and drawers again and poets because we got locked in so people bag tiktok but i like again i found it fun to be able to have like a creative outlet again yeah. um again most of it was just lip reading and just being a, like yeah taking the piss um but, but I found it fun and then I got really frustrated because I was like how does this tradie who just bites his lip and like looks as if he's like the hottest thing in the world with tats make an absolute Mozart and like how do I do that do I have to bite my lip like oh uh, I think yeah. I, I think they always say because as I look into platforms the algorithm on TikTok is the only one really where you can go viral quick because you yeah. watch some of them and you're like there was a young girl and she's got billions of followers and and she's just like and then there's all these people doing the duets going <clears throat> yeah like 100 likes and just like was I yeah. missing something so that's exactly <laughs> right I'm like what am I doing wrong tell me I need to fix my formula. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not going to be able to make a mozzarella dumpling. Like, I need to be able to make it on TikTok. Oh, Please help. <laughs> creativity is coming out. But once you get in that rabbit hole, I've noticed once I, I, I'd be like just on the sofa and I'd be doing it. And then, like, two hours have gone past. Yeah. And I'm like, in the morning, oh. he's still on it. <laughs> I'm like, it's mad. But I just want to say this has been awesome. So on behalf of uh, myself and coming on the campaign and sharing your story just to make an impact and, and, and help people have these hard conversations, I thank you. I'm going to put up all the links where people can find you and your dumplings. Um, you. I'm not going to let you live that down. I think that's amazing. But, uh, <laughs> but guys, I love it. <laughs> just remember, you can find us streaming on all major podcast platforms, Imperfectly Perfect Podcast. But remember, keep having the hard conversations because it is the hard conversations that saves lives. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.